Good morning. Before I get started in the Word, today I have a special announcement, and it's the upcoming wedding of Angie Peters and Willie Hebert. If you'd please stand. Thank you. Please pray for Angie and Willie as they prepare to get married this coming Saturday. And yeah, if the Lord puts them on your mind, they would appreciate prayer. Not just for a fantastic wedding, but a, a lifetime of a godly marriage. <clears throat> this morning, I'd, I'd like to share um, a message in regards to, to knowing Jesus. I know that um, sometimes we, we talk about spiritual warfare in, in the weapons that God has given us, especially even in Ephesians chapter 6. But um, I, I really think the way we can wield those weapons well is if we understand who Jesus is, to, to know him, to experience the depth of him, to, to really get to understand who he is. There's a verse in John 17, 3 that really stands out to me in, in that regard. And it says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, here he says very clearly, he says, if you want to have eternal life, and you want to experience an afterlife, and be with the Lord, presently speaking, with Him um, when, you, when you die here on the earth, um, he says, this is eternal life, to know you. So it doesn't even mean that, that it happens um, Necessarily, when you die, you can already experience eternal life presently. But he says the answer in that is to know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you have your Bibles, um, I want to focus on Jeremiah chapter 9 this morning. Two verses there, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Um, very meaningful scripture uh, passage uh, for me personally. I hope it is for you as well. In verse 23 of Jeremiah 9, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So, one of the things that you see here in this scripture passage, or, or several of the things, you see that, that in our world today, there's, there's wise people. Um, there's people who even may be considered smart. Um, there's people that have might. They have position. They, they're influential. And there's people that are wealthy, that are rich, um, as it pertains to the things of this world even. But he, he very clearly says here, Jeremiah says here, as he's, as he's contemplating and, and getting this message from the Lord, he's saying this ought not to be where we find our boasting or our glory on, on these kinds of things, but rather that we would understand and know the Lord. That we would understand and know the Lord and as we look at that, there's a few things for us to consider. Um, he says there, 
to understand and know Him. Then he says, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So, I would say, and we want to spend our time here this morning on focusing on two different things. One of them is, in order to know the Lord, is that we ought to love the things that He loves. When we love the things that He loves, it gives us an understanding of who He is, and we get to know Him in a more personal way. And, and the second thing is, is, is to believe in Him, to have faith in Him. You know, it's, it's easy to, to think and, and tell people, you know, that I believe in Jesus, but I, I think sometimes it's often just, just a verbal language, right? We, we get so used to speaking in a Christian manner that sometimes it kind of just rolls off our tongue. And, and yet Scripture tells us to examine our faith, to see are we, are we really in the faith? And I would say this, do we really know him like Jeremiah says here? Do we, do we really know this Jesus? Because to know him is to understand him and to see what, what he delights in. But, but our first thing is to know him, right? And then to practice what he practices. There's a little story um, that kind of goes along with this verse that I came across. I thought, man, this is a good little story, funny little story. It's appropriate um, in this context here. And it's about, it goes like this. There's a doctor, a lawyer, a little boy, and a priest who were out on a Sunday afternoon flight on a small private plane. Suddenly, the plane developed engine trouble. In spite of the best efforts of the pilot, the plane started to go down. Finally, the pilot grabbed a parachute, yelled to the passengers that they had better jump, and then he bailed out. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there were only three parachutes remaining. The doctor grabbed one and said, I'm a doctor, I save lives, so I must live, and jumped out. The lawyer then said, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are the smartest people in the world. I deserve to live. He also grabbed a parachute and jumped. The priest looked at the little boy and said, My son, I've lived a long and full life. You are young and have your whole life ahead of you. Take the last parachute and live in peace. The little boy handed the parachute back to the priest and said, Not to worry, Father. The smartest man in the world just took off with my backpack. You know, you, you look at that and you realize um, that sometimes the wisest people in the world are actually fools. And, you know, in this passage here, Jeremiah brings that out and he says, hey, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. There's going to come a time where, where his wisdom looks pretty foolish in a case even such as this. But notice in this particular passage here, he doesn't say not to boast. He just says, consider what you're boasting in. So the, the, the term to boast or to glory, um, somebody has put it this way, and it, <clears throat> and it says this, to glory or boast in something is to celebrate it and to proclaim it as the source of one's happiness and satisfaction. We think of a champion athlete glorying in the trophy that they won. Maybe you've sometimes 
watched um, an athlete achieve the pinnacle of his or her success. Um, maybe it's in the Olympics. And they're on the, the platform and they're, they're draped in the, the, their nation's flag and they're holding their trophy high in the, the, or the, the medal that they won. And in and, and their perspective, they have achieved the pinnacle of their success. They have, this is everything they strove for. This is, this is um, what they live for. And, and as you look at them, you see in their actions, their body language, their facial expressions, you see, yes, I finally achieved everything that I, I anticipated and wanted. Um, that's glorying and boasting. And so Jeremiah says, we ought not to do that when it comes to our wisdom. We ought not to, to do that when it comes to our power or might. We ought not to do that in our riches, in our things. But he says, let the one who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me, saith the Lord. So, God wants us to glory and boast in the fact that we know him. But then I think sometimes we ask this question, what does it really mean to know him? Because we kind of just kind of throw this word around sometimes, or this, this phrase. We, we, we throw it around and we're like, yeah, I know him. Yeah, this to know him is to, is to, to do this or that, right? And, but, but what does scripture say is to know him? And I would say it's this. It's to, it's to believe in him, to believe that he exists, like Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us. But secondly, it's to, to love what he loves. And in this passage here, um, Jeremiah gives us just a, a glimpse of what it is to know him. And he says, this is what God does. He, he practices, and he mentions three things there. He practices steadfast love. He practices justice. He practices righteousness. And, and then he says he delights in those things. So there is something about that that should cause us to, to just, as we even do this personal examination, what is my life look like? What comes out of my heart? Is there evidence in me that would demonstrate to people around me that I know Jesus, that I know him, and, and that I practice the things he practices, that I practice the things that he delights in? You know, it, it's, it's um, you know, I, I think sometimes a way to look at this is even when you have a friend or um, a hobby or something that you really enjoy. One of the things I've always um, often enjoyed quite a bit um, is baseball. You know, I've, I, I love playing the game. I've, I've played it since, uh, since childhood. And one of the things that really blessed my emotional heart is when my two boys started liking baseball. My, my, my two oldest sons and, and now my third son as well. And, and so to be able to see them enjoy what I always enjoyed and, and then to actually pick up a baseball glove and a ball and play with them was very, very delightful to me. And, and so it kind of reminded me, though, of this scripture passage. You know, as, as a father enjoying playing with his sons, um, you know, that's, that's a very, you know, maybe... maybe um, earthly type of thing, right? Uh, you know, and, but, but it's fun and it's good and, and it's, it's rewarding in itself. And yet, 
as a, as a child of God, there should be something about us that also looks at the Father and says, you know, what does God delight in? What does God enjoy? Because I want to put a smile on His face. I want to, I want to do the things that God delights in. I want to do the things that He practices. And, and even this term godly, sometimes we say, well, here's a godly man or here's a godly woman. What we're saying is that they're like God, right? In, in, in their practice. They're like God in their activity, in their mindset, in their lifestyle. And, and so, as we progress in our faith, there should be something about us that becomes more like God as we mature. You know, one of the other ways that, that I can relate to this is when I first got married, I thought I knew my wife really well in, in the first few years of our marriage, and I, I discovered a lot of things I didn't know about her um, as I was married to her to a longer degree. And, and I... And looking back at my first years of marriage, I, I know many times I failed her. Many times I, I didn't understand her love language. And, and so the, the longer I've lived with her, I know there's certain things I can do that she delights in, that she really enjoys. And, and you know, even, you know, we've been married almost 24 years. And, and as I look back at the last, even the last 10 years of our marriage or 12 years of our marriage, you know, there's been a growth that has happened in our marriage relationship. You know, and like, like early on, you know, we, we were very selfish. We're still trying to get rid of all the selfishness and probably won't till we hit the grave. But, but in the beginning of our marriage relationship, you know, we were very egocentric. You know, it was all about me. It was all about my wishes and my desires and the things I wanted to do. As we got to know each other, we, we knew that, that love blossoms as we give it there was something that we started to experience as we started to get to know each other and started to understand each other's love languages and so so we started to realize well we don't like we don't like when we're dealing with impasses in our relationship i remember in the beginning of our marriage you know in our stubbornness sometimes when we didn't get our way we wouldn't talk to each other for a while you know we would give each other the cold shoulder and uh and and, you know, looking back at it, I mean, it's really the, the adult version of a temper tantrum, isn't it? I, I think so, to, to many um, degrees. I think that's, that's my version, anyways, my way of seeing that. And so, as you mature, though, in, in your marriage, you start to realize, I don't like to not be united with my wife. I love it when we're walking in unity every single hour of the day. So then when there's an impasse, you, you start, as you mature in your marriage, you start to work really quickly at trying to resolve those things because you delight in working together with your spouse. You delight in the unity. You delight in the friendship. And, and I, I think that's a little bit how it works in our walk with the Lord. Um, you know, when we are married to Christ, we start to think, what is Jesus like? When I'm dressed in his righteousness, what ought my lifestyle and, and my desires and my, my appetite, what ought it to look like? And you, the more you know the Lord, the more you start to think, well, how can I please him? How can I honor him? How can I, how can I draw near to the, the throne of God? How can I find him to a, a fuller degree? And in this passage here, as I was meditating on it, just it really struck me, you know, it said here that 
here's, here's a God um, that desires us to boast in the fact that we understand and know Him. And then, and then it gives us a clue. And it says here, this is what God does. He, he practices steadfast love. He practices justice. He practices righteousness. And then it says He delights in these things. And so I think there's something in there for us to consider when we look at our own journey. I just want to spend a little bit of time just looking briefly at those three areas there. Um, just to give us a bit of a better understanding like he talks about steadfast love. And when I think about steadfast love, I'm, I'm reminded of the kind of love that doesn't depend on circumstances. That doesn't change when things are not always ideal. And I, I just think that in our world today, even, even in Christianity sometimes, we're, we're influenced by a conditional type of love. That says, you know, I will love you as long as you do what I want you to do for me. As long as everything works out for me, then I'll continue to love you. Um, and, and, and even many, many spouses, you know, enter a marriage with that kind of mindset. Um, where they're like, you know, I, I promise to give myself to you. I promise to love you. But kind of in the fine print, it's like, yeah, as long as it works out the way I would expect it to. That's, and that, that's a conditional type of love that is very unlike the love of God. And I would say that if we, if we get to know God and understand Him, we would practice the kind of love that He practices. And it's a love that, that knows no bounds. It's a love that, that, that is given even when it's undeserved. You know, that's why Jesus, on His earthly ministry, He... he continue to emphasize this to the people around them who viewed God as this harsh taskmaster, this unloving, unfeeling God who reigned up in the heavens and was just waiting to kind of destroy people. And, and when Jesus talked about God's love, he shared stories like stories of the prodigal son who, who loved his son and never gave up on his son and was always looking for his son to return home. You know, th this is the steadfast love that, that reminds us of what God is like and how we get to know Him and be like Him by practicing something that's similar to this. It's the kind of love that, that is not just dependent on, on beautiful sunshine and understands that sometimes we go through adverse conditions like bad circumstances. And, and then we look at what men like Job wrote who, who went through really difficult things, lost everything, even had his, his wife revile him and tell him to curse God and just die and be done with his life. And, and, and he comes to this conclusion, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know, and, and so he's, he's defining God's love as a steadfast love that, that never ends, that never fails, that never changes. People do this. But we ought not to. First uh, John chapter 4. Um, John, as he's writing uh, this letter here, in First in John 4, 6 and 7, he says this. He says, we are from God. We as, we as children of God, we are from God, he says. And then he says this, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth 
in the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so, so John says this here, in order for us to understand the steadfast love of God, there's something that we as His children need to practice. Remember, God practices this. He delights in it. So, so this is the kind of love that He has given us, and it's a relational love, and, and it's a love that we ought to give to our fellow humanity around us too, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They ought to know that, that we give them love, and they ought to see this kind of love. In fact, John says here even, you want to discern between what's fake and what's real? What's from God and what isn't from God? Well, look at the way somebody loves. If, if you want to understand somebody who says they know God, and, and actually they do know God, look at the way they love. Look at, look at their relationships. Look at how they practice love with people. He actually says here, he says, whoever loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And so, so when we casually use this term, I know God, and our lifestyle demonstrates the opposite as we relate to our fellow man, then it's a great cause for us to say, do I, do I know the God of the Bible? Because we live in a world today where, where people say things like, oh, I love Jesus and I just can't wait to worship Him. And, and yet, we know that there's hatred for fellow man. And, and, and even some of their, their closest people in their own homes, husbands and wives, who hate each other. And I ask myself sometimes, well, the Bible tells me that, that if you love Jesus, you're going to love your fellow man. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your closest neighbor? In a marriage relationship, it's your spouse. And so you look at these things, and, and if, if 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, then you realize, you know, this is bad math. This doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. Because my Bible and my Jesus tells me what love is. And my Bible actually tells me how I can separate truth from error by this type of love. And so as you think about this passage, Jeremiah says, says look at the relational aspect in a person's life, and you'll get to understand, do they actually know God, or do they not know God? Is this truth, or is this error? So, God delights in steadfast love, and He practices that. It also says that He delights in justice, and He practices justice. And, and I, I, I just love the term justice. I love the thought of justice. And and I, I think the more I live in this world and the older I get, I just realize often how unfair life is. You ever stop and think about how unfair life is? And I mean, how a lot of innocent people have to suffer the consequences of people's actions. You know, you, you, see, you see children often, right? And you think about um, sometimes the abuse they have to go through. Sometimes you think about um, the homes they have to live in. And sometimes they're left out on the street. Sometimes they're grossly neglected. And, and I don't know about you, but my heart goes out when I see that because it's, I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's not their fault. Why did they end up 
being in a home like that? Why did they, they have to have someone who didn't care for them? And so you, you realize that, that sometimes the things we deal with in this world aren't fair. It, you know, it, it doesn't even just affect the, the human realm. I, I think about it, about it even sometimes when I think about animals. Like, like I, I love animals. And, and um, when I, I think about, you know, you see an animal out in the woods sometimes or, and you know it's full of disease. You know, you've probably seen that. I've seen that too. And, and you sometimes say to yourself, well, what did that animal deserve to be so racked up with all this disease? Or what did, you know, going back to people, and you sometimes think, here is this innocent, beautiful, loving person. And uh, now they're, they're um, dealing with a horrible sickness and a disease and a, some kind of cancerous illness that is, is causing great pain. And, uh, and you look at that and you're like, you know, there's, where's the justice in that? And I think that's why many question God in our world today. Their, their question is, if God is a God of justice, then why does there's so much evil? You know, why is there so much wickedness in our world without recognizing that our brokenness we're dealing with are the consequences of our own actions? That, that humanity tripped up from the Garden of Eden on. And as a result, there's a lot of unfair things that are going on. But as I think about justice, I'm also reminded that God loves justice. He delights in justice. And, and it gives me a quiet assurance in my heart that one day everything's going to be made right. And, and this is what I cling to as a believer in Christ, that, that one day there's going to be a great white throne judgment and all humanity will stand before that white throne judgment. And God is going to right the wrongs in this life. Everything that is unjust, whether it comes from a government perspective, from kings, from monarchies, from, from cruel dictators, or even just the results of sin. We know that at that place, the things that were not affected here on the earth will then be changed and made new over there. And I'm looking forward to that. And you know, even just thinking of Galatians chapter 6, 7, um, where it says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You know, all of life is sowing and reaping. All of life is sowing and reaping. Sometimes we experience um, a quick result of our sowing. But sometimes it extends years down the road and all of a sudden the Lord reminds us, you know, those seeds you sowed 30 years ago are now coming to fruition. And, and you know, it doesn't take you too long sometimes to think, you know, um, I'm dealing with things today because of what I did back in those days. You know, all of life is about a, a sowing and reaping. God is not mocked, it says. And, and I'm blessed when I think about the fact that, that God has enacted the law of the harvest. Even when it costs me. Even when I, I recognize that I'm facing consequences of things that I have done. 
But I'm blessed because I know that's fair and I know what's right. You know, our, our world today, even our, our um, political system, our judicial system is often not fair. I mean, some of you guys experience those things. I don't, I don't know if you've had people that have come and robbed you at your home and only to find that the next day the courts have let them out and they're out in the street again committing the same crime. That, that's, not, that's not justice. That's not fair. We ought not to, <clears throat> to, to get our sense of justice from, from our, 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 our courts. Our, our courts are, are gravely flawed. Our, our, our politics is often very flawed. You know, and, and you think about the, the travesties of things like socialism. You know, socialism where, where we see people receiving something they didn't work for. People that are dependent on somebody else's hard-working taxes, right? When they didn't deserve it. But that's, that's the world system. You know, the, the world system promotes uh, a socialist mindset often. Yet, the, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is found in this, that a person ought to reap what they sown. If there's somebody that works hard for something, they ought to benefit from the things that they have sown. If somebody is lazy and, and negligent, they ought to reap those kinds of seeds as well. That's, that's what God has enacted. And if you study the law of Moses, you see, even way back in the Old Testament, you know, if, if uh, somebody punched you in the face and you lost a tooth, well, you could do that to them. That, that was the law of the harvest. We know that under the, under the New Covenant, Jesus changed that. That, that, um, that thought process. And, and he gave us an opportunity to turn the other cheek and to demonstrate a spirit of love even when evil comes our way. But at the heart of justice, God is a God who desires justice. And one of the things that, that I've always been blessed by too is when I study the life of David, and some of you have done that as well, but you ever ask yourself, what made David a man after God's own heart? Was it the fact that he, he liked to, to um, play his musical instruments before the king? Was it, was it the fact that, that he sought the Lord at an early age? Maybe, to some degree, that was part of it as well. But one of the things that, that really encourages me when I consider the, the justice of God is that David was also a man of justice. And you see that specifically in one of the worst moments of his life. When, when he committed his sin with Bathsheba and, and he lusted after this woman and he committed adultery with her. And, and all of a sudden, here we see a man now who, who knew that he had sown bad seed. And, and he was racked with guilt. And if you read Psalm chapter 51, you, you'll see his brokenness and, and his guilt that he experienced for a whole year. He experienced his guilt. And then all of a sudden God sends Nathan to him, the prophet. And Nathan tells him this story. You know, he was a rich man who had all kinds of sheep and a poor man who had one little ewe lamb. And, and, all, and, and, and the rich man had a guest who came and visited. And instead of taking from his, his many sheep, the rich man took the poor man's one little ewe lamb and he sacrificed it and gave it to feed his, his guest. 
And, and as David is listening to Nathan's story, a sense of justice comes over him. And he's like, well, this is ridiculous. The guy is, is reaping a harvest where he didn't sow. This is unfair. This is socialism, right? This isn't, this isn't right. And so a sense of justice comes over David. And, and David says this there. He says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. Because he had no pity. And then Nathan uh, turns to David and he says, You are that man. And, and I, I love David's response. We, we ought not to lose sight of this. You know, David could have, he was king. He could have put Nathan to death for that, had he chosen to do that. He could have blamed other people. He could have blamed Bathsheba. You know, why was she doing what she was doing? But, but he turns inside and says, you know, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And, and he shows us something that in our day is, is far too rare anymore. Far too rare. He, he takes personal responsibility. Instead of blame shifting... Instead of having a victim mentality or any of these kinds of things that so often grab a hold of us, he says, no, I'm the man. I sowed bad seed, and as a result, I'm, I need to pay a consequence. And even when God told him um, what was going to happen, he recognized that it was just of God to punish him for these things. And so I ask myself sometimes, you know, what really made him a man after God's own heart? I wonder if it wasn't. Things like this. And I think God is looking for people who will practice the things that he practiced and that, that, that will delight in the things that he delights. Steadfast love being one. Justice being another one. Righteousness being another one. You know, we, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And yet, I also think that sometimes we, we don't fully grasp what that means, what it means to know him and to walk with him. You know, um, Jesus told the parable of the, the tares and the wheat. And, and when his disciples, um, or, or in, in the story, in the parable, when, when the, the, the workers of the field came to the master and said, should we pull up the tares? Jesus said, no. Or, or the master said, no, no, let them grow up together. And we'll deal with them at the end time. And I, I think often in our world today, it's kind of like that too. That we grow up, there's tares and there's wheat that are growing up together. Often people look like Christians, even profess to know Jesus, but in their heart they don't really know him. And I, I think it's this key, this righteousness that he talks about. Because God delights in righteousness, he practices righteousness, which is really right living. It's a lifestyle of right living. And, and I'm often reminded of 1 John 3, 6, which says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Remember, we're talking about knowing God. And so, he, you know, John says here very clearly, if you want to look at your life, don't only look at your relational love towards each other or or your sense of justice. But look at this thought. Is your life characterized by a lifestyle of sin? When people view you in your lifestyle, what would they say characterizes you? Is it love? Is it justice? 
is it righteousness? Or would they say, what comes out of your life is pretty stinky? It's pretty smelly. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't attract people. It doesn't demonstrate God. And, and I don't think that John is saying here that, that you never sin. Actually, the, the, the words he says here, no one who keeps on sinning. No one who, who justifies sin and is okay with sin and, and, and continues in a sinful lifestyle. A person like that, he says, has neither seen him nor known him. And so, righteousness is a delight to the Lord. Right living is a delight. But we all know that as a Christian, right living begins in the heart. It begins with, with um, being born again of the Spirit of God. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, we read this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will write it on their hearts. And then he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's specifically talking about something here. He's saying, that there's coming a time, and again, Jeremiah was, was looking forward to the new covenant. And he's saying, there's going to come a time where it's not going to be the law that will keep people following God. It's not going to be the, the do-nots, do-this that will, will keep people secure in their walk with the Lord. No, but it will be, actually be the Lord Jesus written inside their heart. You won't have to run after them and say, you ought not to do this. You should do this. You won't have to do that to an individual who has Jesus written inside their heart. Because there's something unique there. There's something different. A person like that doesn't have to be tied on. He doesn't have to be bound. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I've often been blessed by by Zach Poonin's example about the, the, the cat and the pig. And he says this, he says, he says, a lot of people fall in either camp. He says, a cat, you can tie it on and you can let it loose and it won't run to the mud. It wants to stay clean. It's its nature. Its nature doesn't like mud. But he says, you can take a pig and you can chain it up. And you can keep it clean as long as it's chained up. As soon as you release the chain, what happens? It runs to the mud. Because its whole nature loves to be in the mud. And that's a good way for you to realize the difference between somebody who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And, and they delight in righteousness. In fact, when they hit the mud, what, they do what the cat does. The cat... The cat licks itself and bathes itself and hates the mud and tries desperately to clean itself from the mud. Doesn't want to be in the mud. The, the Christian loves the righteousness of Christ. Loves the things that God delights in. The, the love, the justice, the, the righteousness. 
And he or she finds himself serving there, loving the things that God loves, doing the things that he delights in, and, and doesn't even have to be tied on, doesn't have to be forced into it. It's a delight. It's written on their hearts. God delights in people that practice what he practices and delights in the things that he delights. And I just want to um, wrap up this morning just with, uh, you know, maybe I should have started with this, but I, 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 I wanted to really focus on this steadfast love and justice and righteousness. And, and yet I want us to understand that none of these things will come to us unless we first get to know him and have faith in him and believe in him. And, and I, I don't know, I've been so impacted through the years by, by Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 which says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And then there's this promise for whoever would draw near to God. And, and don't you want to get to know God more fully? Don't you want to experience Him to a fuller degree? He says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And, and it's not just, it's not verbal. Not just verbal, it's not just Christianese or some language that you know, you must believe in your own heart that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It must be personal. This is why we talk about have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? You hear people say, that. what does that even mean to you? Have you accepted Jesus as your... It means <clears throat> you don't accept Him corporately. You accept Him personally. You yourself has, have to come to a place where you, you ask yourself, do I believe that He exists? Is He real to me? Is He, is he there? And do I believe that when I seek Him, I'm going to find Him with all my heart? Those who would draw near to God. You want to be near to God. You want to, you want to understand what it is to know Him. You must believe that He exists. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. It's impossible to delight in the things that he delights. You can't practice the things that he practices. You can, you can maybe put on a show for a while, but it will never last a lifetime and it will never grant you eternal life. To, to know him is to have eternal life. And so it comes back to this. That's why Paul, um, when, he's, when he's sitting in a Roman prison, facing the end of his life, and, and I don't know about you, what you would do in that situation, but you know what Paul does in that situation is he hungers for the Lord. He's writing to the, 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 the Philippian church here, one of the prison epistles, and he's, we know he's in a Roman prison, and we know that he's days away from breathing his last breath and from laying his head on the stone and, and, and being beheaded for his faith. We you know he's days away from that. And, and he says this, he says, man, you know, my desire is to have the best house. And the, no, it doesn't say any of that, right? I don't desire wisdom or riches or power or might, wealth. No. He says, he says this, that I may know him. Oh, that I would know him. That I would know him in the power of his resurrection. And then he says this, that I would share in his sufferings, 
That I would become like him in his death. And he's, he's nearing the end of his life. He's not asking for new clothes or a, a fancy meal or anything like that. Or to be given his liberty, a pardon or anything. No, he's, he's, he's sitting there in his prison cell. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I've looked at this sometimes and I'm, I'm like, yeah, but Paul, you, you encountered Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. You knew him. In fact, you were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write 13 letters in the New Testament. You, you know, half of the New Testament was written by your hand through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And here you are at the end of your life saying, oh, that I would know him. Oh, that I would know him. That, that's my desire, that I would know him. That I would experience the power of his resurrection. Share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And, and I would just say this. To know him is to want to know him more. There, there's a way to measure your faith. And it's, have you, do you experience a greater degree of hunger for him? As the years go by, do you want more of him? Do you want to more fully experience him? Without, without faith, it is impossible to please him. You must believe that he exists. For me, um, I just want to share this little story because it means a lot to me. And I know you've probably heard it many times but it means a lot to me as I understand this thought about does God exist to me personally? It's a story that goes like this. One night a house caught fire and a young boy was forced to flee to the roof. His father stood on the ground with outstretched arms calling to his son, jump, I'll catch you. He knew the boy had to jump to save his life. But all the boy could see was flame and smoke and blackness. As can be imagined, he was afraid to leave the roof. But his father kept yelling, Jump! I will catch you! But the boy protested, Daddy, I can't see you. And the father replied, But I can see you, and that's all that matters. You know, when I look at that example, and I look at, at Hebrews 11.6, that in order for me to know God, to come near to God, I must believe that He exists. I must believe that He's at the bottom and I'm on the roof. And, and I can't use my visual aid. I can't depend on that. Because, I don't know about you, but you look at our world today and, and, and it's dark. And it's smoky. And it's hard to see God in the midst of the mess that we're living in. And so there's something that has to, that we need to experience in our personal life. And we need to ask ourselves, do I believe he's there at the bottom and he's going to catch me? That's the gospel. If you want to know the Lord, you're there. At, you're, you're, you're willing to jump. You're willing to jump. Because you know He's got you.
And I just, I think that's something we ought to consider. Sometimes we kind of flippantly tell people, yeah, I know him. But when I, I think of guys like Paul there, you know, just ready to give up the last moment of his life, and he says, yeah, all I want to do is know him more. All I want to do is know him more. The power of his resurrection. I think of, 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 of the many martyrs who have given, been given an opportunity to say all you have to do is deny him and you get to go back to your life. And, and to the credit of so many of the Christian martyrs in our history, they said, absolutely not. Why would I deny him? He's always been faithful to me. That's to know him. And, and, and it's in moments like that where you, you start to realize the difference between truth and error, between the wheat and the tare. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, I just pray that you'd pour your spirit upon each person here. Lord, there's likely some here today who don't have a personal relationship with you. There's probably some here today that all, are, all they are seeing is the fire and the smoke and the blackness and are unsure if they should jump. And Father, I just pray today that you through your spirit, that you would, that you would remind them that you are there and you won't let them fall. Father, would you give the eyes of understanding to each person here, the eyes of faith, that they would behold you and that they would live eternally, Lord. Father, so much of life depends on us listening to you and choosing to listen to you or to harden our hearts. And Lord, I pray that none here today would harden their hearts. Lord, that they would expose themselves to you, that they would experience you to a fuller degree, those that do know you. And Father, those who, who don't know you, Lord, would you give them the faith today to believe that you exist and that as a result they would take that leap of faith and cling to you and surrender to you, Lord. Father, would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen.